Last year, Janet and I went to Cape Town, South Africa. And on our first day there, we went to the waterfront and booked passage to Robben Island. Now, Robben Island is one of the most famous prisons in the world, mostly because of one inmate. Nelson Mandela spent 18 years in maximum security, 18 of the 27 years he was imprisoned. He spent those years on Robben Island. Since the Dutch claimed the island in the late 1600s, Robben Island has served many purposes. It, it was an animal quarantine station. It was a leper colony until they determined it wasn't good enough or safe enough to be a leper colony. And mostly, though, Robben Island has been a prison, a place of exile for political prisoners. The Dutch brought prisoners from all their colonies all over the world, men who had been convicted of treason, accused or suspected of agitating against the colonial government, people later generations would call heroes or terrorists. The Dutch knew the power of taking people from the places they thought were the whole world, the only world they knew, to a place as far from home as possible. Robben Island might as well have been another planet. And when the South African government began to use the island as a political prison in the era of apartheid, they surely knew the effect of taking men from their homes to a place that might as well have been another planet, but from which, on a clear day, they could see home, or at least the city of Cape Town, just a little more than four miles away. No one could escape Robben Island and survive that rough passage to the mainland. Now, the maximum security cells, like Mandela, look inward on a courtyard. But everyone there, every man there, knew how close he was to home, even if he couldn't see it. So in the year 598 BC, forces of the upstart Babylonian Empire take the brightest and best of the southern kingdom, Judah, from their homes and march them by a long route, about 900 miles, to Babylonia. We would call it Iraq today. The Judeans aren't exactly prisoners, more like human spoils of war. They're not slaves, many of them provide skilled labor for Emperor Nebuchadnezzar's infrastructure projects. They're hostages, too. They're being held to guarantee that the puppet king the Babylonians installed back in Jerusalem pays tribute on time. The Judeans are allowed to live together. They have a, a degree of freedom, and their captors make sure they get news from home. They are, though, exiles, no matter how well their captors treat them. Any word from home reminds them they can't go back. And the news isn't good. The Judeans hear about every loss and every defeat until Jerusalem is destroyed, the capital city raised, and their beloved temple reduced to rubble. They're allowed to take some priests and prophets and elders with them, and they leave one prophet behind, Jeremiah. 
their prophets offer commentary on the politics and the intrigue in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And so they say, see, this is all falling apart. We won't be here long. We'll be home soon. It's like all of the people in September 1914 who said, this will all be over and the boys will be home for Christmas. Jeremiah gets word from Babylon and he's allowed to write back to the exiles. He is in minimum security prison in Jerusalem. But he sees firsthand how bad things are in the homeland. We read, or we read this morning Jeremiah's advice to that first wave of exiles. He says, don't listen to those prophets. Stay faithful. You can do it, even if you're 900 miles away from the temple. Jeremiah's sure it won't be all over by Christmas. And so he tells them to dig in for a long stay, at least a generation, 40 years by biblical count. And the Babylonians are thorough. They take the first crowd in 598-97. They level Jerusalem and take another crowd in 587. And then they take the last in 581. So the Judeans spend 60, 50, 40 years in exile. And their cousins from the northern kingdom are already settled there when they arrive. Build houses and live in them. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. So this isn't about passive acceptance of a sad fate, sit still and wait for help. This is about building a life in a strange new world. Plant gardens and eat what they produce, get married and have children, both powerful biblical images of fruitfulness, of purpose, of life in a time of loss, life in the shadow of death. And this is counsel to flourish like the ancestors in Egypt did for their first generations. Flourish and wait for the day when God will bring you, your children and grandchildren, home. And as a prophet does, Jeremiah sees God at work in everything, some more than others. So Jeremiah says the exile is a consequence of the unfaithfulness of the kingdoms, of their prophets, priests, and kings. So God has sent them away. But, Jeremiah says, God will bring them back in God's time. So, seek the welfare of the city where God has sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Maybe you've heard of the Stockholm Syndrome, you know, uh, when the captor begins to sympathize, or the captive begins to sympathize with the captor. Well, this isn't that. But this is what generations of Jewish people have known since the exile. So many times, in so many ways, minorities, wherever they have been. So many times, in so many ways, exiles, where they have been. The ultimate revenge the ultimate resistance is to make yourself indispensable, absolutely necessary to the people in power. And in 2015, 
archaeologists discovered a store of palm-sized clay tablets in Iraq. And inscribed on those tablets are details of the daily life of the exiles. When the tablets were put on display in Jerusalem, the curator of the museum said it was like hitting a jackpot. And this is from the Jerusalem Post. Nebuchadnezzar allowed the Judeans in Babylon to become merchants or assist in administering his growing kingdom. They were free to go about their lives. They weren't slaves, the curator said. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't, uh, wasn't a brutal ruler in that respect. He knew he needed the Judeans to help revive the struggling Babylonian economy. Now, the Bible records the complaints and the laments and the struggles of the exiles, and they were exiles. Their fate depended on the will of a foreign power. But the tablets tell us how many took Jeremiah's advice. This is again from the Jerusalem Post. Many Judeans gradually returned to Jerusalem after the fall of Babylon to the Persian king Cyrus in 539. Still, many others remained in Babylonia and created a vibrant Jewish community that lasted two millennia, and they didn't return to Israel until the 1950s. Seek the welfare of the city where God has sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. When you find yourself in a place you didn't, couldn't choose, when you look around and all you see is strangeness and strangers, the best thing you can do is be a good neighbor. Tarek Haddad and his family are refugees, and their journey began in the city of Damascus and ended in the little town of Antigonish, Nova Scotia. Tarek's father was a businessman in Syria. He had a chocolate factory. So when Tarek came to Canada, he brought his experience watching his father, working with his father, and his father's family recipes. And if you've ever been to Antigonish, you'll know outside the university campus, it's white. It's very, very white. It's a town full of pasty-faced and freckled Scots, and they are proud of their heritage. It's a cold, damp place most of the year, and that suits Scots better than Syrians. But chocolate cuts across culture and climate. And Tarek Haddad's business is called Peace by Chocolate. And it's more than the talk of the town. In fact, it's on its way to becoming, after the university and the hospital, the largest employer in Antigonish. And not long ago, Peace by Chocolate was the talk of the UN. Our Prime Minister told the story as an example of Canada's openness. So after that, Tarek told Global News, this is Canada the nation that received immigrants from all over the world to be one nation. A Syrian newcomer would become Canadian the first time you're on the airplane. So after that, the governor of Vermont invited Tarek Haddad to come and speak to him and to business people in Vermont and to schools about his experience and his business. And he was denied entry at the U.S. border because he's a refugee from Syria, still in exile. As peace by chocolate grows, 
and sales spread in Canada, Sobeys just picked it up. Tarek's plan is to open branches across the country, employing refugees wherever he can. Seek the welfare of the city where God has sent you, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And when you find yourself in a place you didn't, couldn't choose, when you look around and all you see is strangeness and strangers, the best thing you can do is be a good neighbor. We know there's a rising tide of white rage in North America and Europe. Remember Charlottesville, Virginia. Racist screeds spread around the east end of Toronto last summer. And two weeks ago, Groups of young men were caught putting up posters all around U of T campus, posters that said, it's okay to be white. Now that's an innocuous message, but their goal was to provoke opposition, to prove their belief that all the media are biased against white people. We know the white supremacist bias, not by the way, includes bias against women, the First Nations people, and LGBTQ people. These Canadian and American-born white male, mostly young men, believe they are exiles in their own homeland. They look around and see people who are different from them, and home isn't home anymore. And it's true, they haven't moved, but the world has passed them by in many ways. But they're still white males in a world that's still biased toward white males. They haven't moved. That's the problem. And as far as they're concerned, the welfare, the prosperity of the city should benefit them first and certainly far more than they think it does. But how do we feel when we don't recognize our old neighborhoods, our old workplaces and stomping grounds anymore? When we realize we live among strangers, newcomers, many of them exiles, Many Christians in North America feel as though the world has moved on and passed by the church. We are no longer in the center of things in Western society. We are on the margins. And many Christians experience it as a kind of exile. Some of them call it persecution. How do we deal with that? Jeremiah has some advice. Seek the welfare of the changed city where God is still with you together. Pray to the Lord on its behalf and for everyone in it, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And when you find yourself in a place you didn't, couldn't choose, when you look around and all you see is strangeness and strangers, the best thing you can do is be a good neighbor. Amen. Glory to God.